Excerpts from Sir Fairchild's Journals Day 115 It's been quite some time since we left on the boat from Tarsus in Turkey. I'm now on a small freighter, crossing the Atlantic Ocean heading toward Brazil, the last leg of my journey and one of the most difficult, I presume. My destination is São Luís and from there the Amazon River. This trip is going to be the hardest since little is known about this area of the world and much of it yet to be explored. I'll be entering a virtually unexplored region. To recap my previous endeavors, before I boarded this freighter ship called Topaz, my trip up the Euphrates River was uneventful, to the delight of my crew. It was the easiest money they ever made, but what really consumed my time were the few words I learned in Baghdad. Since that time, I have not been able to decipher anything else. It's been frustrating, but nevertheless, I carry on. I've written so many symbols in my journals, and yet only the few the historian mentioned were the ones I understand. I think I'm missing something, something basic. I should have been able to at least figure out more since that day. The crew I left in Turkey were good. I just hope I acquire a comparable one in Brazil. I am somewhat encouraged by the multitude of recommendations I have received from the freighter's crew. A wider selection of people to interview should leave me with a fairly excellent staff. It's late in the evening and I've just finished dinner with the shipmates, but I must write down what was discussed during dinner with the captain of the ship, Captain Ruiz. It was a typical meal with a less than interesting bunch of seafaring help. They saw each meal as an opportunity to put down England, brag of their manly exploits, and to put in a good word for their friends and family members as perfect help for my expedition. Strangely enough, they didn't ask what I was looking for. They only knew I was interested in visiting the Amazon River, thus their questions only focused on how much money. Captain Ruiz, being tired of this same talk day after day, told the men to shut up before they bring the wrath of Tututan upon them. Let me put exactly how he said it. Tututan blesses our journey. Do not anger him with your stupid banter. To my surprise, the men immediately became quiet and didn't say another word. I asked who was Tututan, only to receive silence from everyone at the table, and a finger against the captain's lips while shaking his head. When dinner was over, and I was finally alone with him, I relentlessly asked again. Now, how did he put it? Tututan protects and guides our journey. He makes a way when there seems no way, and he clears the path so no harm may come to us. There was no way I understood what he just said, so for the last time I asked him, he slowly said that Tututan was believed to protect the ancient people of Inca from harm. The story of Tututan was passed down from generation to generation as a story for some and superstition for others. He then showed me his ring. It was the ring that caught me totally off guard. It was solid gold with a large topaz gem in the middle. However, under the gem was a single character. It was one of the characters from the tablet at the Al-Akaf library in Baghdad. The characters stood for Hand of God. I'm sure he didn't realize I recognized the symbol and was just showing off in front of an Englishman. I can't believe how fortunate I was to run into all of the information I've gathered so far. It's as though I'm destined to learn more. Anyway, when I asked Captain Ruiz where I could get such a ring for myself, he shook his head, smiled, and walked away without saying another word. Now all of this seems too much of a coincidence until I remembered one important fact, something I overlooked before. The historian in Baghdad who knew much of the language on the tablet had the same ring on his finger. If it weren't for Captain Ruiz, I would have never made the connection. But strangely enough, 
Here are two men from two different countries and continents, possessing the same type of ring. This all suggests some kind of organization or secret society functioning throughout the globe. That could only explain why Jean-Claude was tracked and hunted down for so long over great distances. I realize now I must be more careful of whom I interact with. I must make sure whoever I hire is not part of this group. I wish I knew more of this group, but I fear learning more about them will only expose myself. I must stick to my original plan. By doing this, I could inadvertently learn more about them. Day 142 I've been in Sao Louis for several days now, and I'm becoming very nervous. The word went quickly throughout the area that an English professor on sabbatical was looking to learn more about Brazil's natural beauty and mysterious Amazon River. Since then, there's been a constant line outside my door of natives looking for work. My hope of being surreptitious is no longer a reality. Now I have to create the pretense of being slightly off-kilter and careless with my money while screening prospective hands. My first success was in finding a trustworthy translator. He didn't have a topaz ring, indicating his affiliation, and wasn't in the line asking for work. I bumped into him while I was in the marketplace. He was one of the vendors selling salted fish and other assorted victuals. I noticed his English was quite good as we struck up a conversation. I learned he had taught himself several languages in order to do business with all types coming by Sao Louis. When I asked him if he was interested in being my translator for my adventures, he originally declined but finally accepted when the money I offered was too good to pass up. His name is Hernando Ortiz. Thus far, Hernando has helped me weed out the undesirable candidates and made reasonable suggestions to speed up my selections. The final decision has always been mine, but his input was greatly appreciated. There was one time Hernando told me to reject a man who seemed perfectly good to me because he was a thief, a liar, and would most likely kill me on the river after taking all of my earthly possessions. I dismissed the man without hesitation. So far I have half the people I need for the trip and should have a full crew within the next two days. I'm still amazed at how eager these people are for work despite the uncertainty of the Amazon River. From what I hear it can be perilous and unpredictable. Many have disappeared trying to unlock its secrets. Day 146 Tomorrow we take a boat to the mouth of the Amazon, which is just west of Belém. We'll cast off early in the morning, arrive at Belém that evening, spend the night, and then make it to the mouth of the Amazon River the next day. I'm kind of nervous and excited about this whole trip. Again, I find myself not knowing what to look for. And with the thick vegetation of the Amazon, it will be hard to see anything, unlike traveling on the Tigris. This trip on the Amazon will be my last. After this, I'm returning to England. I have enough information to keep me pondering for the rest of my life, but I feel as though this last leg of the trip is most important. Also, I'm not the type to leave a job half done. Anyway, Hernando assured me the boat was completely stocked, guarded, and ready to go tomorrow. He seemed rather excited despite the danger and uncertainty the trip holds. It's almost as if his enthusiasm is indicating some alternative impulsion, but the enticement probably comes from the promise of all the money coming to him after the trip. I really don't know him that well yet, but when I'm comfortable, I'm going to ask him if he knows anything about Tututan. Maybe Hernando can shed some light on the subject. Day 149 Since Belém, we separated into four small boats to navigate the Amazon more efficiently, since there may be areas where the depth may be too shallow for a large boat. 
I'm in the lead boat with Hernando Ortiz. It's early in the morning, and we just entered the Amazon River. I cannot really explain the feeling I have right now, but there's something eating away inside me, telling me to be cautious. I've checked and double-checked and still cannot see where I may have made a mistake, but still the feeling nags me. Did I overlook something? I don't know. The only thing I know is I'm entering a part of the world where not many men have dared venture. Few have and made it a certain distance before turning back. Few ventured so deep that they were never heard of again. What mysteries will I uncover? What unseen dangers lurk up ahead? Before we enter, Hernando led the group in a small prayer in his native tongue. I just wish his prayers were heard. From what I've seen and experienced in Iraq, I fear what we might come against will be darker than anything I've ever faced. Chapter Initiation I see you're nearly 100% back to normal Mrs. Hemlock, said the doctor as he examined the charts and made his normal inspection of the patient. I'm pretty sure you'll be released shortly. And Marie smiled at the doctor. She was relieved to have the IV tubes removed from her arms and the adhesive EKG circles removed from her chest. It felt as though the invisible shackles holding her to the bed were finally gone, giving her the sense of freedom. And when will I be released, doctor? asked Anne-Marie. The doctor placed the chart back at the base of the bed. Soon, very soon. I'll let you know later on today, he said as he turned to the door. Oh, by the way, said Anne-Marie, I have the need to stretch my legs. Can I do so freely? The doctor looked at Anne-Marie and rubbed his chin. You could probably walk around your room without any help, but anything further would require a nurse. But they're always so busy, she pleaded. Yes, they are, aren't they? I'll make them aware of your needs. Without another word, the doctor left the room. Anne-Marie took a deep breath as she realized she wasn't out of her prison yet, since she couldn't move about without an assistant close by watching her. She longed for the time of her release. She then wondered where Julie was. And Marie hadn't seen the nurse all morning and wondered if the girl was running away from the whole situation. Remembering her things in the closet, and Marie got out of bed, opened the closet, obtained the key, and paused. Looking nervously at the door, she stood up and closed it. She went back to the chest and paused for a long time before inserting the key and opening it. She then unwrapped four journals from a badly weathered cloth, its original color lost forever from years of abandonment. She sat there shaking, wondering what she should do next. These four journals were the cause of so much pain. Her life was turned upside down because of what her father wrote so many years ago. How could four journals hold so much damaging information to reach across the span of time to threaten her son's life? She lost a father to these four books and wasn't going to lose her son, too. And Marie's heart thumped loudly as she opened the cover to the first book and read day one. She quickly dropped the book and turned around when a sudden chill engulfed her. The room seemed darker than it did minutes ago. Looking around nervously, she saw a man slowly appearing on her bed. His legs were crossed, his arms folded around his chest. He was dressed in a doctor's lab coat, and he wore a displeased expression on his face. And Marie jumped back into the closet when the man appeared. The man didn't seem menacing, just perturbed and disappointed. What do you think you're doing, Anne-Marie? He said. Who? Who are you? She managed to ask, while unknowingly trying to move further into the closet as she pushed the floor with her feet. The man shook his head, his eyes never blinked and was always focused on her. 
It's not for your eyes, he said. I, I, Aunt Marie looked at the journals on the floor. Not for my eyes, she thought. Why not? My father lost his life for this. My son may lose his life for this. The man responded to her thoughts. Because it is not meant for you as of yet. What? Whatever or whoever this man was, he seemed more interested in trying to make her understand why she couldn't do something rather than threatening her. Who are you? She managed to ask. The man smiled. That's not important. You, on the other hand, must do what you were commanded to do. He stood up and slowly walked toward her. When the time comes, and Marie Fairchild Duquesne, you will know what to do. But for now, put the journals back. They are not for your eyes. Another must first see them. And Marie closed her eyes as a gush of wind slapped her in the face. When she opened them again, the room was back to normal and the man gone. She looked at the journals and, without hesitation, locked them back up in the chest. She placed the key where it originally was, closed the closet door, ran to her bed, and sobbed uncontrollably. Sean looked at his watch and tried to calm himself as he waited for Agent Brown to return from the phone call that had interrupted their meeting. The meeting had started off with Agent Brown telling him how pleased he was with how quickly Sean had learned the basic fundamentals of being an FBI associate. However, before Agent Brown could continue, the phone had rung, causing him to curse as he went to answer it. Sean looked at the floor, then at his shoes. They were the same pair he had on when the dark assassin had first brought him here against his will. He chuckled as he thought of how he initially fought against them. He wondered why he ever did such a thing. For once in his life, everything was beginning to make sense. There was finally no doubt in his mind about what he had to do. Everything was clearer and more focused than it had ever been. Despite this newfound clarity, the only thing bothering him was his present isolation. He longed for civilization, some small hint that he and Agent Brown weren't the only living beings on the planet. Several minutes passed as Sean considered his secluded surroundings when Agent Brown returned. Brown smiled as he sat down next to him. Now, where were we? He asked. Yes, that's right. He said, answering his own question. Agent Brown reached inside his pocket and produced a small black jewelry box and a folded piece of paper. He held them in his hand as he started talking. Sean Duquesne, I had my doubts about you from the beginning, but I must say I was wrong. You've embraced the truth and have taken significant strides toward being an associate in our cause for helping the man Vass. Where once I didn't trust you, now I do. We have decided to give you the level of trust normally given to someone at this time. Agent Brown handed the folded paper to Sean. Read it. Sean read what was on the paper and, confused, looked up at Agent Brown. It says only one word. Ari. What does it mean? Agent Brown smiled. It's the name of your assistant. My assistant. Yes. I believe you met someone like him several days ago. Sean was clueless. I'm sorry, but... Agent Brown held up his hand. Ari is just like the one who detained you and Albert Spencer in the basement. He's been assigned to assist you and should be arriving here in a few hours. You must be joking. I know what I'm doing is important, but surely I can do it without one of those things hovering around me, Sean thought. It's important you begin to feel comfortable around these beings. They're only here to help us reach our destined state of evolution, said Brown. Realizing Sean's reluctance, Agent Brown placed a hand on Sean's shoulder. There's no question about your loyalty, 
This is a common practice. Sean shuddered when Agent Brown's hand touched him. He felt a chill coursing through his bones, forcing him to concede. Good. Agent Brown smiled again. Then by accepting, you are now considered an associate. He handed the small jewelry box to Sean. Once open, Sean gazed upon a beautiful gold ring sporting a topaz stone set in the middle of it. Sean saw a symbol under the stone he'd never seen before. Put it on. Sean was about to place it on his wedding finger when he saw his wedding ring. He removed his wedding ring, placed it in his pocket, and put on the new ring. It was heavy on his finger, but strangely made him feel powerful. Do you like it? It feels nice, Sean answered. It's a step in the right direction, you'll never regret it, said Brown. And you'll be dead if you ever did, Brown thought afterwards. Agent Brown then showed him his ring. It was identical to Sean's. Sean wondered why he had never noticed it before. Whoever you see bearing this ring, you can trust. Never forget that we're a group of individuals, almost like a brotherhood. He laughed. Okay, we do have some sisters in our group. By taking this ring, you signify your unity with us in our cause. You're now one with the man at Davas. He grabbed Sean's hand and shook it hard. Thank you, Sean managed to say. No, thank you. It's men like you keeping the fight alive. Without people like you, there'd be no hope, Brown said, while thinking that the words he just spoke were the absolute truth. Now relax. Take it easy. Tonight's initiation may tire you out. Initiation? What initiation? asked Sean. That whole day Anne-Marie didn't see Julie. When Anne-Marie asked one of the nurses, she simply said Julie had taken the day off. And Marie didn't know what to think since earlier today, she got confirmation of being released tomorrow morning. If she didn't see Julie tonight, then chances were she'd miss her tomorrow. Maybe she made her decision by avoiding me, she thought. Maybe this was just too much for her. She looked at the clock, which was the only light illuminating the room in the darkness. It read 1.35 a.m. And Marie shifted her weight in the bed and closed her eyes, trying not to think about anything at all. She prayed for Julie Targus, for Sean, for Lisa and the kids, for the difficult and rocky road ahead, and for God's blessings. Sleep didn't come easily, but when it finally came, her dreams and slumber were peaceful. However, with the morning came disappointment when Julie didn't show. She guessed the girl called in sick again. Anne Marie went through the normal patient checkout, thanked the nurses for their kindness, asked them to thank Julie for her, and then left the hospital for what she hoped was for the last time. She walked to the corner of the street. So, here I am again, Lord. What do I do now? She mumbled. No answer. She decided the best thing to do was to find a room for the day, figure out what to do next, and then make it real. Anne Marie started walking away from the hospital. When she was several blocks away, she placed the heavy bag holding the chest on the ground. Maybe I should just fetch a taxi and have it take me to the nearest hotel, she thought. Shockingly, a car slowly pulled up to where she'd stopped. The front passenger door flew open. Julie Targus leaned over the steering wheel and said, Looks like you're carrying a heavy load, Mrs. Hemlock. Mind if I give you a hand? With a big smile on her face, and Marie grabbed her things and leapt into the car without the slightest hesitation. Sweat started to form on Sean's face as he made several jerks with his arms and legs. Tonight his comfortable bedroom didn't bring peace and rest as a dark dream formed in his subconscious mind. 
It was nighttime again. Why was it always nighttime? Anyway, as usual, I woke up early in the morning with a full bladder, so I relieved myself and went back to bed. As I closed my eyes and images started to form in my mind, that's when they came. At first it was just a faraway sound, but it quickly intensified, as if it was heading in my direction from a distant place. When it finally reached my bed, everything began to shake, and the noise was so loud I feared I'd lose my hearing. The ringing inside my head was unbearable, but I was thankful for the blanket over my head. Maybe whatever came for me couldn't get me as long as I was covered. Then on the other hand, maybe it could. I soon found out I wasn't so protected when out of nowhere a shrill filled the room. The blanket, in which I put too much faith in, began to shake, something wanted to get to me. I lay in my bed, immobilized by fear, as the physical attack against my ears and blanket continued. I mumbled something like, please leave me alone, but everything intensified in protest against my feeble attempt for deliverance. Help me, please someone help me, I mumbled again. I feared if I didn't get help soon I'd be consumed by the force assailing me, but the answer I received wasn't what I expected. It was a deep, unnatural voice, with extremely hot breath on my ear telling me to forget about being saved by anyone. It said, there's no one that can save you. You belong to me. The voice froze my heart to the point that I automatically jumped out of my bed in fear of mortal extinction. With streams of sweat pouring down my face and a now unfrozen heart threatening to leap from my chest, I realized it was just a dream. But what a dream, it felt so real. I sat there in my bed looking rapidly at every corner in the room unable to decide whether to go back to sleep or to keep an all-night vigil. But my mind cried out in horror as I realized there was something wrong with my room. Everything was too dark and murky at the same time. Was I still asleep? Where was I? That's when I saw it, or should I say, realized where it was hiding. In a small corner of the room was an area where the darkness was far too dark. How else can I put it? It was blacker than black. When I focused my eyes on it, it started to grow to the point where it almost reached the ceiling. It took the shape of a large man, a black silhouette of a man, where two red eyes opened where the head was. When it opened its mouth, it too was red, blood red. I shrank back against my bed as the dark figure stared at me in detest. It was at that moment I knew it wanted to destroy me, to consume me whole. This was all too real. All of my senses were heightened and working properly. It was as if my body and mind were stuck in some kind of alternate reality. As the figure continued to stare at me, it suddenly smiled devilishly and then pointed a finger at me. Its hand seemed to extend from the far end of the room all the way to my chest. When it touched me, I felt a pain, a horrible pain in my chest. I felt as though I was dying. Suddenly I felt weak, my eyes drooped, the room began to spin, and I slumped on the side of my bed. Breathing became hard for me as I began to feel lightheaded. This was it, I thought, I'm going to die. My eyes never drifted from the dark figure, even as it came closer. I felt the thumping of my heart slowing down. Everything was slowing down. Even the approach of the dark figure seemed slow. When it finally hovered over me, it roughly grabbed me by the neck and lifted me halfway off the bed. I'll never forget the words it said. No, you're not going to die. You're already dead. It threw me back on the bed and laughed. I felt its hot breath assaulting my face as it loomed over me. I don't know why and where it came from, but a very small voice within me cried for help as I desperately gasped for breath. Dear God, help me. 
The dark figure stopped laughing and glared at me. With a booming voice that shook the very foundation of the room, it shouted, How dare you? It viciously picked me up and slammed me against the wall. With its large hand completely around my chest, it brought its face close to mine. The stench was unbearable. It smelled of burning rocks, rotting flesh, and sulfur. The eyes itself seemed to sear my flesh as it gazed at me, and I felt the claws from its fingers digging into my sides as it held me against the wall. You belong to me. I can do whatever I want with you. It moved me away from the wall and pushed me back against it harder than before. My neck snapped back and I saw stars before my eyes. The pain was all too real. This definitely wasn't a dream. I then saw its other hand reach for my face, force open my mouth, and roughly extend my tongue. Tears flowed from my eyes from the pain as the thing nearly ripped my tongue from my mouth. If you ever say those words again, I'll make sure you never say another word. Ever. Again I was slamming to the wall, but this time, I was released and landed roughly on the bed. I tasted blood in my mouth from my tongue. The dark figure moved back, pointed a finger at my chest, and smiled again. You're mine, Sean Duquesne. I'll never let you go, you belong to me. It then disappeared, leaving me in my bed battered and bruised. I slowly, and with great difficulty due to my wounds, pulled the covers over my body and head. There I lay shivering in pain and fear as I. Sean shot out of his bed, panting uncontrollably. He quickly looked around his room in fear. His heart was bumping against his chest underneath a sweat-soaked shirt. He glanced at the clock, 3.45 a.m., and got out of bed to get a drink of water from the bathroom attached to his room. Sitting back on the bed, he tried to clear his head and remember what happened. The only thing he could figure out was he had a nightmare, bit his tongue, which throbbed painfully, and pulled a muscle on his side. He looked at his side and saw several long scratch marks. He figured he must have scratched himself during the dream. After turning on the lights, he walked over to the certificate he received during his initiation. Smiling, he recalled the initiation. It was almost like some kind of stupid fraternity ritual with Agent Brown and Ari dressed in black robes, reciting words in Latin. At specific times during the recital, he had to say yes, nod his head, and agree to whatever they were saying. Then when it was all over, they discarded the robes, gave him a certificate, and had a luxurious feast. That was it, nothing more, and nothing less. In a way it made no sense to him, but it did make him feel as though he just joined something significant. Sean felt his new ring against his finger, smiled, and then looked at the certificate he signed earlier. It read, I, Sean Duquesne, being enlightened by the forces that dictate the nature of mankind, fully understand the magnitude of confidence in which I am entrusted and empowered by. I hereby bestow my very heart and soul into becoming an agent of supremacy over all who may come against us. With this pledge do I fully accept all that will be expected of me, and realize with this responsibility comes great loyalty of the highest echelon. No foe will come against us and survive. With this I fully commit myself. 